Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. have the trailblazing Pat Dudgeon on the podcast. We discuss with Pat, well actually Nat Heath, our board member, discuss, discusses with Pat how she started out in her studies, her motivations and the projects she's been a part of. We discuss the big events of the last few years, the progressive ideas which have led to different models and programs as well as considerable change for Indigenous community. Pat talks about the importance of connection to kingship, community and country. She shares how globally Indigenous psychology is shifting for the better and how exciting that is for her. She shares how strongly she believes about the obligation to leave an easier, to leave an easier path for the Indigenous generations to come and why doing things that make your heart happy is just as important. Pat talks about her desire for what future care models look like for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. The key takeaway message being treasure your difference and your local connectedness. Serve your community in a way that makes your heart happy. We are currently in Ghana country. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on Ghana country and pay respects to the Nungar people and the Ghana people of this nation, pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge all the beautiful First Nations people that call this place home, whether they're from Ghana or the Nungar people or they've come from other parts of the country and also acknowledge undercover brothers and our non-Indigenous sisters too who walk alongside us. My name's Nat Heath. I am one of the advisory group members of the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association, but I am with the wonderful Professor Pat Dudgeon, who I'm going to call Arnie Pat in respect. We will have a lot of um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people here listening. So for all our non-Indigenous people, Arnie Pat's not my direct Arnie, but out of respect, I call her aunt. So Just before I hand over to Arnie Pat, I just wanted to read out so our listeners have a bit of an understanding of what Arnie Pat's done. Arnie Pat is Australia's first ever Aboriginal psychologist. And if I get any of this wrong, Arnie Pat, feel free to correct me. She's also a fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences, and she was brought in in 2021. In 2019-2020, she was Australian Psychological Society's president and she was awarded for a distinguished contribution to psychology in Australia. She's a Western Australian patron of the National Justice Reform Initiative, 
She's an Indigenous Allied Health Australian Lifetime Achievement Award. She was awarded that in 2013. In 2013, she was also awarded the Deadly Award for Excellence in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health. And she was also in 2009 inducted into the Bachelor Institute of Indigenous Tertiary Education Hall of Fame. Done a little bit, aren't Yes, but I have, Nat. You have. But I guess to start off, if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you come from. Okay. Like you, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Ghana country and Nunga people. I'm actually, I'm, I'm a visitor here today. I live and work in beautiful Nungabuja, that's in Perth and Western Australia. Western Australia. My people, even though I've been there about two-thirds of my life, my people are actually from the Kimberley, so I'm from the Bardi people of the Kimberley. I actually was born and grew up in Darwin, though, so a little bit of my heart belongs to the Larrakia people. I actually went to Perth to study psychology because at that time Darwin didn't have a university, so that's telling me age, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so that's telling. But since then, they've got a fabulous university. And I studied psychology. I think it was hard going and it was very, it was a discipline that didn't have room for any cultural, any other cultural groups. And that probably triggered my desire to change things, to change mm-hmm. the paradigm. And it didn't suit our people, you know, mainstream mental health at the time. It was very, it wasn't inclusive of our our realities. In retrospect, I don't think it was even inclusive for mainstream realities, a lot of it. So so it's been a journey since then. I've seen, seen a lot since then. Yeah. How did you get into wanting to study psychology? What was the, what was the trigger for that? Look, the motivation was pretty basic. It was I wanted to help people. Mm. So I think, you know, I'm a natural helper, so I did want to work with people and help them. So that was my motivation. Yeah. So you, you were saying you, you lived in Darwin and you moved to Perth to study. Why Perth? And also, I guess, you know, how did you go about because there's obviously a lot of young people, there's a lot of old people who are looking at what's what's next for us and sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to relocate, move away from home and family. So how did you, I guess, take that step to do that and what were some of the challenges and how did yeah, you overcome it? Yeah, look, happy to share them because I, I think some elements of that change are still present yep. in, nowadays. So at the, I probably did it in the wrong way. So I'm going to tell you how not to do it <laughs> rather than to do it. Yeah. So I'd done a very poor mature age TE, if you like, at, at the Darwin Community College, but that was enough to get me into WAIT, it was called then, the Western Australia Institute of Technology. So I was, that was enough to get me into the psych course there. Yeah. So I basically packed my bags and family up and we drove down to Perth. We, we, I had a, a letter of admission. I didn't, I missed the orientation. If I could go back and do it again, I actually would have gone through the Aboriginal bridging course. Yeah, okay. So that would have been, stood me in better stead. It would have got me ready to study at a university much better. It would have also bonded me to other Aboriginal people who had also locals and others who'd come down to study at a university, which wait, soon changed its name soon after and became Curtin University. So so it was a bit alienating and probably not the best way to do it. Most universities do have Aboriginal pre-tertiary programs. Do them. Do the face-to-face ones as well because then you will make friends that you will keep for the rest of your life. And it's a very fine thing. You're all in it together. You support each other. 
Um, it's a massive journey of challenge that you go through together, but it's an amazing bonding experience and it also centres you and protects you as a cultural group. After I floundered around a bit, I pretty well hung out at the Aboriginal program at Waite or Curtin mm. at the time and my friends that I developed were all Aboriginal people studying in different programs. So I later on I made friends. I'd suggest that people who are going to study have your core group, Aboriginal group, if you like, but try and make friends with mainstream as well because they're your future colleagues. And, and it was interesting because so I can remember, remember one incident. So I think I was in third year psychology where I moved, walked into the psychology students area that we had and I said hello and no one said hello back. So I thought, oh, my God, and I felt very uncomfortable. I hung about for a while and then I went, took off. In fourth year, I became very, very good friends with some of those students who, are, you know, I still consider my friends now. Um, and I said, remember that time when I walked in and none of you <laughs> And they said, oh, they revealed that they were all had their own struggles and they mm. probably thought I was speaking to someone else. So I'd misperceived it. I thought, oh, well, you know, you can all get stuff too. I'm not coming back here again. But I didn't give them a chance. And I think that they felt quite inadequate. They felt they were struggling in their programs and whatnot as well. So that challenge and that experience is similar for everyone, I'd say. So, so I think it's important to connect with the Indigenous area in any mm-hmm. university, but try and make friends with the mainstream as well. Unfortunately, you might have to do the inevitable awareness session. Yeah. But I think it's still better than it was in my days. I don't know. I think there's been a sea change. So we used to, just in one project, for instance, I'll talk about this as an example, but we did this Australian Indigenous Psychology and Education Project. We'd won a grant from the Office of Teaching and Learning or Learning and Teaching at the time. So we, we assembled some colleagues from different other universities But it was really, no one really wanted to know about increasing the number of Indigenous students in psychology programs, nor did they want to know about putting Indigenous studies into curriculum. But we we worked ahead on this project and we produced three pretty awesome reports, you know, on how to increase the number of, you know, what strategies you need to do as a school of psychology to include more Indigenous students, what things that you could do to to put Indigenous studies into your curriculum. And the fourth one is about was more focused on professional development and cultural safety of practising psychologists. So that was a good project we did, but we, we left it at that. But I think it did trigger some changes in the accreditation standards. They started, you know, saying that we need to add in a criteria about, about competence in cultural safety. And then recently we reinvigorated that project. So... We started up again. I must say, I thought it would be a handful of people of like-minded people who would engage in the project and, and, you know, we could work together, encourage each other, write papers and, and it would be more of a personal project than anything else. We put the call out to the universities and it went off. We have got over 70% of all departments or schools of psychology now engaged in this project. It It was the change has been incredible. 
And we've been working on, you know, really tightening up the the accreditation standards for cultural safety, producing papers with the Australian Psychological Society. And this is a whole movement has taken off and and one that very much includes Indigenous concepts of well-being, such as the social emotional well-being framework and diagram. So there's this big, absolutely profound sea change that's happened. And I was thinking, we were all a bit suspicious, thinking, hey, what's happening? Well, we're not used to this. And once we settled down and, and became used to it, I think that what that signals is that you know, a lot has happened over the last few years. In particular, we've had, you know, well, we had a, uh, uh, we've had these massive global movements happening. We've had Black Lives Matter. Mm. You know, the George Floyd incident that mm. triggered off that just fired up the Black Lives Matter movement, yep. which then shone the light on what was happening for us here in Australia. We had our Australian Psychological Society had delivered this brilliant apology to Aboriginal people, and that was endorsed by all the board. The you know, no one had done that before in this particular area. So they delivered a, a, a fabulous apology. We had other social movements happening as well. You know, the Me Too movement, you know, issues about climate change. So we're living in a, a world that's much more challenged, that's much more global now. So I think a lot of the old academics had retired as well. Mm. So I think we had new people, more younger people coming into the area and with more progressive ideas. So that's, that's I think, accounted for some of this change. So we're still, we're at the moment surveying what people are doing in their respective programs. Um, I think that this will bring about a considerable change. It's There's a core textbook, Australian Psychology, which we have a chapter in. So it opens and then there's in Australian Indigenous Psychology, a quite significant chapter. Then there's the third chapter is actually Maori Indigenous Psychology. Oh, yeah. So because it's pitched for Australia and New Zealand. So having that happen, I wouldn't have dreamed of that, you know, 10 yeah. years ago or let alone when I first graduated. So I think that there was a, probably a lack of information on, on, you know, challenging mainstream but also offering our own paradigms and models and whatnot and now it's everywhere. I'm so delighted when I see a different, whole different models. This conference that we're at speaks to that. You know, all these different programs and different ways of, of seeing the world, you know, through cultural lens. So, and I'd say to each of them, you know, that, you know, treasure your difference and, and your local connectedness and you need to go ahead. So I think that breaking down that, the, the monolith white walls of psychology there's still a space for some of the offerings that mainstream mental health and psychology have to offer, certainly, but I think we have to critically choose those. So I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we need to push our own way in there and have our own models, our own understanding about what it is to be human because that's what psychology and mental health is about. It's about describing us as human beings, all of us, and our, our experiences and our, our life. So I think that mental health is fabulous. It's, it has pushed, you know, that certainly has come about, but I think that it is limited too because it comes from a very Western perception. And I think that even Western people don't fit into those nations. It's a, a wealthy Western background that if you're poor or of another cultural background, you... you you're seen as deficient, so you're, it's a deficit. So I think it's an exciting time to live 
through. I think we're going to see massive changes. And what I've seen at this conference, you know, is a testimony to our own resilience and 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 incredible wisdom too that you know that we've managed to retain knowledge despite the very brutal processes of colonization and that that will you know that will that's our future mm. and i need to acknowledge obviously yourself like you would have stepped in a time where it would have been such a western paradigm the way that psychology is approached even process when working with people and even you're sort of talking about now there's that shift around that People want to be more aware, want to understand from a First Nations perspective. And you, you touched on it. We had an amazing Q&A session this morning, which you were a part of. And you talked about one of the things about keeping yourself strong, particularly as First Nations person, is that connection to country and how important that is in regards to your overall being. But I guess thinking about it in a psychology context, could you give a bit of an explanation around the importance for First Nations people with their well-being to have that connection? Oh, look, absolutely. And it's not only country, it's Mm. uh, other things as well. And I know at the moment we're developing a paper looking at, and we've pulled the the sources from different places too, like there's been evidence on loneliness, for instance, the impact that has on your well-being. And it's, you know, we know already that people who are more richly socially connected do much better. They do much better overall, both mentally and physically. So we're pulling all that together because the, the SUBA or the social emotional being concept is it's there's a, a number of different domains that make up a person. And the first obviously is your physical self, but the second, so that's, you know, and that includes your brain and, and all, you know, your body that you should be eating well and doing a bit of exercise and so on. But the second part is your mind and emotions, which is, you know, I think mental health usually stops at that. But what we've proposed, and we didn't invent this, this model was developed by the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association, but it was on the, the work of other Aboriginal people too. So we didn't come up with this concept, you know, out of the blue, it's been built from our people. So the, the other domain that is important is your connection to your family and kinship. And I say kinship, because that's mm. our extended family. So your connection and, and to your fa- family and kinship, then it's your connection to your, your community, your family, it mm. makes up the community. And then your connection to your country, very important. Mm. You know, Aboriginal people will ask each other where they're Mm. Which country they come from? Well, we did from. it even before we started yes. with making the connection with Marnie and your connection yes. with her. Yeah, yes. So that's that's important, and it's your connection with your culture and cultural practice, and then finally with your your spirituality and your ancestors. So they they all make up. They're not all in precise slices of the pie, mm. like the diagram shows. They're actually all messy and overlapping and merging into each other in in real life. I'd say. But uh, those those things to look at all those different domains for your being well is it's important to consider all of them, and you know to spend time with good parts of your family. Some you know if you you know some of us have families where there's some really great people, but there's some that you know disturb and, and disrupt you. So you know make sure you spend good time with the people who care for you and you know you like to be with. So that is important for Aboriginal people. 
But also, you know, being connected to your community is important. Going to those community events and participating, because you're representing a family in any case, and then spending time on country. And, you know, even in Western culture, we know that too. Often when we go for a retreat, clear our heads we go we don't stay in the city we go out to the country mm. we reconnect with nature but even more stronger for aboriginal people so but it doesn't need to always be your own country too mm. it could be you could go into other countries with a proper introduction and with respect but to enjoy being there as well so sometimes it is good to just get out into nature and to be as one with the countryside the culture, domains of culture and spirituality and ancestors are self-explanatory. You know, um, a lot of our activities, cultural, I mean, going fishing with family on country, would, you know, that would cover a few domains. Um, so, like I said, they're not like neat little slices. Mm. Usually they're all happening concurrently and they're overlapping. And, and whatever your spirituality is, is just, you know, keep that, keep that close that, you know, we're not just insects scrabbling around, but we are part of a greater universe, you know, in whatever way we say it's who's in mm. charge of yeah, it yeah, yeah. or who represents it. But, but the, you know, there is a spirituality also about connecting into country and earth. And I think I probably didn't say that so well as... Some of the morning speakers said about, you know, being there. I, the One of them spoke about when we talked about what would the future for our children look like and she was describing being on country. Oh, and, Sarah? Uh, yes, yeah, Sarah. Yeah. And how, you know, she wanted her children to be able to, you know, sit next to the fire and feel mm. the warmth and be in that moment of this, feeling the wind and the, the sand under their feet. So... So it, it is a profound thing, but a very healing. It's very healing. And I think that, as I said in this morning's session, that, you know, it's got to be, for, I'm concerned with our people getting that first, but it's for everyone. It's mm. not non-Indigenous people are also included. And, in fact, one of the authors of the paper on social-emotional well-being, he used to deliver programs to non-Indigenous people and I said, well, how did that go? You know, could, what about the connection to country? And he said, he said his reasoning was that we are all children of this earth and we all need to be able to connect into it. So there's different ways of looking at it and I think no one, no one is excluded, which is important, but I would I'd definitely, it's got to be for our people first, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So much to take out of that and obviously the last two years with COVID and even call it like the technological boom with social media, the uh, disconnection to, to to kin, to country, to family, friends, because a lot of people connect through a device. You can see the impact that's had. So it is so critical that we, we do get that connection. And as you said, not just countries in place, but countries in, you know, spirituality, culture, social. You touched on ADA or... The, or AIADA, the no, APA. Oh, sorry, yeah, I'm the, seeing the doctors, yeah, the Australian yeah, Indigenous no, no, the psych Psychology. You, and you mentioned that group, the association, when you're speaking, but that must give you so much pride as the first ever Aboriginal psychologist to now see there's an association of psychologists. There's, there's you know, many, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander psychologists now in, around Australia. Oh, look, that's been a growing group. We still have a long way to go. I think the numbers, I think that we've probably got about 60. There's a lot more entering university courses mm. now. So just off the top of my head, 
And I think to have parity, we need about 400. So there's a big gap there. And and, um, one of the things out of the IPAP project that we've just renewed, which I spoke about earlier, Mm. is that because people are now involved, we've got a community of practice that meets every month, that all the universities are now starting to offer places for Indigenous students. We've got some great scholarships happening, you know, the... Huggy Hunter won the Bendy Lango mm. one at the APS. Tracy Westerman's offering scholarships. So, so there's been a lot of initiatives happening and places becoming available. So hopefully that will we'll see a change in that. But again, very much IEPA's voluntary. You know, we could be doing so much more, and we do try to, but it's voluntary. Mm. We don't get any monies to support, and we're not going to charge membership. Yep. So, so I think we could be doing more to support our our indigenous sites. Already, though, some of our members will provide clinical supervision for our up-and-coming sites and activities such as that. So, so early days, but yes, that was more of an accident, me yeah. being the first one. Had I known that, I think I would have uh, become so anxious I would have pulled out to tell you I would have pulled out of my yeah. program because I did anthrop as anthropology as mm. my undergraduate, which I liked much better than psychology, if the truth be to- told. It was just, you know, that's where I learned concepts like ethnocentrism yeah. and, and stuff like um, that. It was much more interesting. I like social anthropology. But had I known that, I think I would have really scared me and I probably wouldn't have, would have paralysed me. Yeah. So I'm only a generalist psychologist. So I think there's been others who have broken the, the barriers, you know, coming out as the first clinical psychologist and whatnot. But mine was more accidental. It's something I wanted to do. And lucky I didn't know it at the time that I was the first coming through or else I think I would have caved in. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it was more for, by good good fortune. But I think, you know, as as the, the first ones come through in whatever discipline or profession, whether it's social work, medicine, nursing, mm. like Auntie Joan Winch, yeah. that you then have this obligation that this is automatic to ensure that you help the ones that come behind you so, you know, you have to make the journey much easier for them. So I hope that, the you know, the activities I've done over this you know, past three decades and particularly the material that I've provided as well mm. because then it was very, as I said earlier, it's very, it was very, very white, very clinical. It didn't have any room for any cultural, other cultural difference. It was actually when I opened my eyes a little bit or became aware is that I'd read a journal Black Psychology by the African-American psychologist. And, you know, and that broke, I realised that you didn't have to stay in this paradigm. You could actually helicopter out. So that, for me, intellectually, that was an important moment back in the day, seeing that. So the world's changed since then. The American Psychological Association has Indigenous Psychology Task Force. So it's happening across the globe, which is great because then there's no turning it back. But, yeah, it's, it's, I think everything has to change. Knowledge as we know it, how we teach it has to change and be more inclusive and be more, you know, about global and responsible world too where we are. We've got obligations and responsibilities to nature, to society, to justice and all the rest of it. So I don't think it can pretend to be empirical and distant and objective and away from the the issues that are happening in real life, you know, war yeah. and all that. So 
So I think that, yeah, I think that university programs, I expect and I hope that they'll be in creating solutions to the challenges that we face as a, a global society. Arnie, Pat, you talked about something which really prevalent you see with um, many First Nations people, which might be a little bit different to non-Indigenous people. Like, let's say in your example, you know, you do a psychology degree, you got to do psych, you know, you just, it's a job, right? But in your context, and you talk about Arnie Jones, and you hear so many people have been speaking today, it's not just about me, it's about we. Yes. And and you're not just going, well, I'm just, I've trained up and now I'm going to go work at uni. Like, it's about setting up the rest of our next generation and providing yes. opportunity. And obviously that also comes sometimes, it's an, an obligation, a responsibility, and it's a, a great responsibility, but it can also be a burden. And I'm, I'm interested in, you know, why that's so important to give that context, particularly to maybe non-Indigenous people listening, but also how you, you manage your own well-being to along that pathway and journey? Oh, look, I think one we are a collective people. Mm. That's our nature. You know, we run in a group. We don't run as individuals. And that's probably doesn't all go well in a capitalistic, you know, patriarchal society where yeah, I think that the myth is, you know, the lone a very tough business person is the one that succeeds. So I think that the well-being of all of us is important and that's why we are collective. I think as we start to either work or study at university or whatever, as we become older, we become adults and see things around us much more clearly, I think, or we grow up seeing it very clearly. We can see the injustice, you know, history now is being revealed, you know, with shows such as the Australian Wars. Mm. I mean, we'd learned about that in university and actually had taught it in our bridging courses mm. that we had at Curtin at the time. But to see it taught in mainstream or presented in mainstream is absolutely fantastic. You know, it is a time for truth-telling and, and um, that is our way forward. So I think for all of us that we are collective and... And the relationships we have with our families and communities are really important. And that might be for us, some of those communities might be other people that we meet in university or collectively, how we know. We know the, the situation of our people and so we have a natural obligation to work to to try and start addressing that. And that's what I was hearing this morning as well from others. So, so I think that that those obligations come about and that doesn't make you, if you choose not to take them on, I'm speaking for young people out there, if you want to do, I don't know, architecture or interior decorating or whatever, do do what makes your heart happy. You could, you know, serve your community in different ways as well. So, so we've chosen this way, obviously, but, you know, I, I'd hope that there's more freedom of and creativity for our, our younger generations coming up. But in it all, we have to look after ourselves. I think we, you know, I see so many of our leaders that get very burnt out. And, you know, sometimes there's no thanks given, you know, you could work your heart out for the community and and, and cop a lot of lateral violence, yeah. um, you know, in, a, in doing that as well. So I think that you have an obligation to yourself. You've got to keep yourself right. Yeah. You know, your family, community are very important to reconnect with them. But you should also have a special group, whether it's in your family or your friends or that you can rely on that keep you sane, who are positive, you know, and you should be doing 
positive things, whether they're an exercise or sports, that gives you enjoyment out of life. So I'd suggest that, you know, build good hobbies, you know, treat yourself to a holiday or, a, you know, you know, buy that house if you can, you know, get a loan or afford it. So, you know, we don't, uh, I think that in our pursuit of justice, of social justice, we forget that we have to look after ourselves. If we burn out and we're ineffective, we can't help anyone, let alone ourselves. So we have to look after ourselves as well. Yeah. We've touched on it quite a fair bit. We're obviously here at the Indigenous Wellbeing Conference. I mean, it's second year, it's over 500 people. And I feel like it's one of the first times I've been at a place with such magnitude, such number of people where it's, uh, we're looking at, we, we understand the rates of like suicide within our communities. And so often we speak of or hear of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and Maori people in a deficit model. But it's been really clear over the last two days, it's around empowerment and a strengths-based approach and us leading the future of how we support our communities and wellbeing. And I imagine that's been, you know, a huge shift since even when you commenced. So I guess my question to you is like, you know, are you excited for the future of like, even just from being at this conference, like what, where do you see like success? What does success look like for you, for our, our communities over the next five, 10 years? And how do you see us getting there? I think that, I think I'm excited. I think there's change coming and, I, you know, I think, am I being too much of a Pollyanna? Some that, you know, I'm being too up. But no, I think it's realistic. Look, you know, uh, what's happening now, you know, the the in incredible inclusion, the truth-telling that happened, you know, the outing of racism, even though it's ugly when we confront it, at least it's out there before it was totally denied. So I think these are things that all go well for a future. You know, when we use, it becomes natural to do a welcome to country. I think there's great pride in having for in mainstream Australia that we have an Indigenous population that they can stand by and celebrate. There'll still always be pockets of racism, I'd say, to, as well. But I think there will be a lot more opportunities, I hope, for our... I'd like to see a future where anyone, you know, if you're having... Because we are in a mental health, you know, mental wellbeing conference that if you have throughout your life, if you need any kind of support and healing or programs, that you'll be able to access those. And they might be mainstream ones, or they could be ones that you could book yourself in through your local Aboriginal medical service to do a back-to-country camp. Mm. You might be able to book in and have cultural healers come and do treatments on you. So I think I'd like to see a whole array of different programs that are present for people throughout their life course, and I'd like to see them available for non-Indigenous mm. people as well. But I think that that's the whole, you know, if your family needs support and, and care, you should be able to access that. So uh, that's what I'd like a future to be like, where people are, um, you know, that, that it is a positive one where you get all the supports and programs you, you need but that you can, um, you know, express your own self and live your best life and be happy. This, is, this has been incredible, like just sitting here and talking to you, listening to you this morning, um, learning so much. And so, yeah, it's an, it's an absolute privilege. I, I have one last question for you. You've achieved a lot, but what's next for Arnie Pack? 
oh, what's next is to retire and just become a crazy cat woman. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I will still be a crazy cat woman despite this. I think I'll never, I might formally retire, but I, I'd like to do more work in the community. I'd like to write more books. I'd like to do more research with community. When I, we do our research, we always work with community stakeholders. It's weird if we don't. So our research isn't like us staying in the ivory tower and just writing things. We actually go out and, and partner up with stakeholders, Aboriginal stakeholders in the community. And and that that is a a good thing too. That brings a lot of satisfaction and and enjoyment in your life and connectedness. So I'd still like to be writing papers. I don't think I yeah I probably would change direction and and yeah just work with people a bit more. I'd say. Hmm. Well, Pat, on behalf of the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association and also the First Nations Committee, I just want to say thank you for for coming here and being in Ghana country. My absolute pleasure. And just on behalf as an Aboriginal man, just want to say thank you for everything you've done within our communities over the last few decades. So thank you. Thank you. Cheers, peeps. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.